Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Donna Guy about her recent book, Creating Charismatic Bonds in Argentina, Letters to Juan and Eva Perón, published by the University of New Mexico Press in 2016. Donna Guy is Distinguished Professor Emerita at Ohio State University, She has published numerous books on women, gender, sexuality, and the state in Argentina and Latin America. Professor Guy has recently been honored with the 2019 Distinguished Service Award from the Conference on Latin American History, and congratulations for that. And it's a great pleasure to be here to speak with Donna today. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's it's a pleasure to be with you for a little while. So to begin, could you tell us something about the origins of this particular project? How did you get interested? And can you tell us a little bit about the newly available sources you used? Well, I think I was always interested in Ava Perone. uh, And I was wise enough not to undertake the project uh, when I first started uh, doing my research on, on Argentina because um, a lot of these materials were hidden, uh, not available for, for reading, uh, not cataloged, uh, certainly. And um, furthermore, there had been stories, and I know that a good part of this was true, uh, that a lot of the documents on Peronism and a lot of the papers were burnt uh, in 1955. And when I first started looking at Peronism, it was during the uh, military dictatorship. And at the uh, Biblioteca Nacional, um, in order to look at anything on Peronism, uh, it was in this caged entity. And there was a woman who had a key which opened up a box, which had another key, which opened up the cage for the Peronist materials. And... um, you had to get special permission to go in and see them, and there weren't very many materials there at the time. So um, it was a project that was at the back of my mind, but it wasn't until the uh, end of the military dictatorship and the, arrive, the arrival of Peronist governments that it was possible to think about these materials because people really started looking for them. And um, I ran across other scholars who knew the location of these materials, and they were in the oddest places. Uh, For example, there was a huge batch of materials in the archives of the Society of Beneficence, which was the supposed archenemy of Eva Perón. Uh, It was the women's group that gave out charity, state-supported charity, uh, since the 1820s until it was closed down by Juan Perón, not by Eva. And um, so I found out about those, but then another huge, huge lot of materials 
became available in the National Archives as they started going through contemporary documents. And now there is an entire uh, published catalog of these materials, which is online from the Archivo General de la Nación Argentina. But at the time, there was none of that. And there were 600 boxes to go through, um, which, of course, was an absolute impossibility. Uh, and they had these very vague uh, types of organization. And I picked the topic, social topics, which I thought was about as close as I was going to get to um, Peronism and letters. And lo and behold, they appeared. And then I found them in, um, in other places as well. In other words, this is the, um, a kind of gift that Peronism in power brought or has brought to Argentina um, that I could benefit from. Thank you. So this book is set in Argentina during the first Peronist period from 1946 to 1955. Could you set the stage for our listeners in terms of what's going on in the country in economic and political terms during this era? Yes. Uh, Peron, well, first of all, Argentina um, had been um, a country that had had a very high standard of living at the beginning of the 20th century. It had one of the highest standards of living in the world. Um, but as the uh, world trade began to change and Argentina's traditional trading partners for wheat and for beef began to change as Great Britain placed more emphasis on its uh, colonies and former colonies than on a country like Argentina, um, Argentina had to uh, settle, particularly during the 1930s, on very unfavorable terms just in order to be able to sell its products to Europe and particularly to Great Britain. Uh, after World War II, the country was really in a sad state of affairs uh, economically and politically. There had been military governments uh, off and on since the 1930s. And um, a lot of the industries, both domestic and for export, were in bad shape. And when Perón was elected president in 1946, this was a, an opportunity, in a sense, for Argentina to rebuild itself, partly because a lot of money that Argentina um, had for selling its products were, in fact, locked in England and in other uh, currencies um, besides the pound. And so in order to unlock that, they had to figure out how to spend the money. And about the only way they could spend the money was through nationalizing um, foreign uh, industries in Argentina. So this was a, a period of uh, populist nationalism. Uh, it was a time of great internal migration from the countryside, uh, which had been devastated by the war and by droughts and uh, other national, natural calamities. Uh, and 
um, they were moving to Buenos Aires. And so there was this great movement of people. There was a great demand both in the countryside and in the city for what we would call in the United States a New Deal. And uh, this is precisely what Perón offered, where he became the first president that I know of that asked people in his country to write to them and to write to him and tell them what they needed. Um, And so all these letters were received by a governmental agency. And uh, for this first five-year plan that Perón had created, the plan was pretty much planned before people wrote. Uh, But uh, then in the second five-year plan, there was much more attention paid to the people who wrote letters. But there was this huge pile of letters that nobody had ever read um, outside of these ministries. And they talked not only of how to fix the country or how to fix the village or how to fix the countryside, but they also talked of um, unmet needs, great unmet needs that people had. At the same time that that happened, um, Juan met Eva Perón, who had been a radio actress and had her own program, as a matter of fact, where she talked about famous women in history. And she was also a movie actress who made a few not great uh, films. But she was um, very popular in Argentina when Perón met her. Uh, She was Perón's second wife. His first wife had died. And um, at this time, and without Eva ever asking for any letters, people started writing to her. And there's a couple of reasons why. And the first one was that there was a very famous woman called Doña Petrona who wrote a series of cookbooks that have been in print uh, ever since the 1930s. And she encouraged people to write to her. And she had a radio program. And uh, women um, absolutely swore by Doña Petrona's recipes. And she asked them to send her anything, any changes that they wanted made. And so they would write to her like crazy. And so there was already a tradition of writing to a woman, but never a tradition of writing to a woman in power. Um, But there was a kind of uh, transition from writing to Doña Petrona to writing to Eva Perón. And um, the people who often wrote to her were the women who were migrating from one province to another, particularly to Buenos Aires, and also from women whose husbands had left them and left them with children uh, and with very little support. And once their family could no longer help them out, they wrote to Eva. And this was the origin of the Eva Perón Foundation, which she set up in order to help people like that. So that's a very quick review of what was happening in, in Argentina. It was a period of great unmet needs. It was a period of uh, the increased use, use of um, uh, 
communications, not only the radio, but also uh, the movies. And before every movie was played, there were events of the day. And so Juan and Ava would appear in every movie theater in the country. Uh, and, and it gave a kind of emotional closeness that um, was really much like the fireside chats uh, that Roosevelt had in the 1930s. There was this sense that there was some sort of relationship between Juan, Ava, and the people. And so people wrote to them for different reasons and with different expectations, but together um, they in many ways met the emotional needs of people after World War II. So from there, I I wanted to ask you, what is charisma exactly? And how is your approach to understanding what you call charismatic bonds distinct from the ways that many other scholars have approached this big question of the charisma of the Perón couple? Well, I'm not the first to write about charisma in Argentina, but nobody who wrote about charisma, either in the 19th century or in the 20th century, for that matter, wrote about the role of women and the role of gender uh, in charisma. If you read the classic works of uh, the 19th century and early 20th century, it's all about male leaders who um, have a one-way bond with uh, with the military, uh, with the, uh, the citizens of the country, and it is a relationship of power to lack of power and um, a kind of enthrallment of people. And I see charisma more as a two-way street. Not only uh, did someone like Juan Perón seek to have people write to him, but Ava never asked for anybody to write to her, and they wrote to her anyway. And they had their own needs. Uh, And so you get letters like people saying, well, why don't you come to our village and have supper with us, and let's talk about these plants. I mean, it's the kind of thing that authoritarian governments and early uh, caudillos or men on horseback in Argentina would not necessarily have thought of, um, of this kind of two-way relationship. Or if they did, that's not the way they were perceived by the people who studied them, um, with the exception uh, possibly of um, uh, more recent works on, um, on Rosas and other dictators in Argentina who, had, uh, who created their own little welfare states um, with the soldiers to keep them in line because the only way you had power in the 19th century was through the men whom you commanded. But they also had widows and wives and their needs uh, needed to be met as well. But that's a, a contemporary way to study um, dictators of the 19th century and early 20th century. And so I see this as um, a direct product of mass communications, of letter writing, uh, of um, people who knew better than to accept a promise that wasn't going to be met. Uh, I, I consider the Argentine people of the 1940s and 1950s to be very aware 
of their lives and their circumstances, and they wanted Perone to make their lives better. And this is one of the reasons why the first and second five-year plans were so terribly important. And this is also why uncovering the letters to Eva Perone were so important. I can tell you that people from all over the country have told me stories about their parents uh, writing to Ava, getting things from Ava, being helped out by Ava. So these letters are not unlike the stories that people have told me over the years. So thinking a little bit about chapter one, can you, you've said some already, but can you tell us more about this early correspondence directed to Ava? What exactly were people asking for and how should we understand these very personalized requests in the context of an emerging welfare state? Well, Ava was the daughter of, and the illegitimate daughter of a second family that her father had, which was very common in Argentina for a wealthy man to have a second family. The second family did not have the rights. They didn't have the rights of inheritance. Um, she grew up uh, perfectly aware of the fact that she was illegitimate. And illegitimacy in the countryside of Argentina was extremely frequent and very painful for the children and the mothers of these relationships. Now, in Argentina, there is a uh, place called the Civil Registry. And um, everybody had to be registered there. And if the father was not um, a, the legitimate father, uh, his name could not be put on the registry. And uh, this was by law. And so what women often would do is um, refuse to recognize that they were the mothers of these children. And they say the ch child is an orphan in order to force the man to willingly recognize the child because that was the only way that she had any power to affect this relationship between the father and the child. So the problem of illegitimacy was an enormous problem in Argentina and in other Latin American uh, countries where um, the Catholic church and church law was really as much about property rights uh, as it was about legitimacy and other things. And so um, uh, one of the early laws that uh, Perón passed was to eliminate these differences of legitimacy, which made him extraordinarily popular in Argentina, extraordinarily popular. So the, these are the situations that people found themselves in and so there are women migrating to Buenos Aires with their children. Their husbands left them in the countryside as the result of the Depression. Uh, traditionally, the literature on Argentina said that uh, the rise of Peronism was due to the migration of men to Buenos Aires, who then joined labor unions and became part of the support of labor for Peron. But the truth of the matter is, more women migrated to Buenos Aires than men. And once you started looking at the um, statistics regarding migration and seeing where people came from, 
you realize that a real revolution had already taken place in Argentina by women um, coming to Buenos Aires and looking for someone uh, who would help take care of them and their children. And that's another thing that Ava Prune did by opening up um, what were called transit homes, or hogares de transito, where women and their children could stay, and then she would uh, help them find jobs uh, while they were looking for work. And so this was a, a tremendous um, migration of people. And I suppose the last thing that was very important is that there was a huge earthquake in the province of San Juan in 1944, uh, which decimated uh, the province of San Juan. And um, interestingly enough, fewer people migrated from San Juan than from other provinces, despite the earthquake, because Perón, who was just beginning to become very involved in politics at the time, and that's how we met Eva, as a matter of fact, was at one of these events to raise money. They helped uh, raise money for the people in San Juan, so there was less need of these people to migrate to Buenos Aires as opposed to other people in other provinces. Um, so when we move into the second chapter, um, we are seeing requests for state pensions. So can you tell us a little bit about how letter writers tried to show their worthiness and need um, facing a very confusing bureaucracy and what this tells us about poverty among rural, elderly, and infirm um, Argentines in this era? The plans for pensions was not something that was well advertised, but it was something that eventually became known to people. Before this, people would write to the Society of Beneficence and ask for help, um, for uh, pensions for themselves, for their children, uh, for whatever. And then as Perón announced this, uh, and... Um, this was in the midst of his closing down several newspapers who were his opponents, so it wasn't as well advertised as other elements of Peronism. People began writing letters to the government. They were supposed to go through um, specific governmental plans, and they had to fill out a, um, a letter um, or a form which specifically asked questions about how many children they had, their ages, uh, what were their professions? Did they own property? Uh, this was not supposed to be for somebody who owned property. Uh, if they were ill, they were supposed to have doctors attest to their uh, illnesses. And what became curious about all of this is that for the first year after it was announced, there, none of these grants were awarded. And then after that, as Ava set up her Ava Perone Foundation, Juan... Um, even though it was supposed to go into a government agency, Juan let Eva announce who were the people who were going to get these um, uh, these pensions. And they were basically for old people, but they were also for mothers, single mothers, um, and uh, for uh, ill people. And uh, so gradually this pension uh, was seen as something that Ava was giving out and people started writing to her or to her foundation directly 
And then she, they, her foundation would tell them they had to fill out the government papers. Uh, and nobody got any more as the result of writing to Ava or to Juan. And um, almost everybody got the pensions that they asked for, but it became popularly known as something that was done through Ava, which elevated Ava's ability to interact as a person who was going to give welfare as the Society of Beneficence closed down. It was going to be the Ava Perone Foundation that was going to give out charity. Um, and Juan thought of this as a welfare state. That was his interest in closing down the uh, Society of Beneficence instead of letting some elite women decide how to spend government money, he wanted it to be a government agency that would determine according to specific criteria who would get pensions and who would not get pensions. Now, Ava, on the other hand, was much closer to the former Society of Beneficence in the sense that she wanted this person-to-person interaction. Um, and that's why people saw her as the face of the welfare state. And they did not necessarily trust government agencies, so they felt a lot better about writing to her. And she had all kinds of women who read all these letters and uh, answered them, and sometimes she answered them herself. And so you can see when she intervenes and when she doesn't intervene. Can you tell us a little bit more about the people who were writing these letters and some of the situations they describe when making their requests? Well, all these people had to be met by social workers. And very often it would be somebody from the Ava Perone Foundation who might write a letter, or else it was a social worker um, from the government who would go and visit the people. So you get these reports about the quality of the housing in which they're living in, the um, the health of the individuals, the possibility of any relatives providing any additional aid uh, that might not be accounted for in the forms that were sent out. And so you get th- these very graphic pictures of poverty in Argentina in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, because these files go on and on and on, uh, that people hadn't written about. Because Argentina was the land of cattle raising and wheat growing. And in Europe, Argentina was known as one of the wealthiest countries of South America And in England, there was a term to be as rich as an Argentine. And um, I remember some of my colleagues after I published these things on the welfare state and then later on the specific letters who said to me, gee, you know, they had always seen Argentina as a land of plenty. And it was very depressing for them. And they preferred not to think about the Argentina that needed uh, the the poor in Argentina. And so I think historians, in a sense, were often complicit in um, promoting this idea of the well-being of Argentina 
as opposed to the level of poverty that existed in the country, despite the great wealth that some people had. That's why these letters are so fascinating um, to help us understand uh, inequality um, in societies in which not everyone has the opportunity to, you know, publish uh, opinion pieces in a newspaper to make their political demands clear. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, these, you know, some of these, these letters almost drove me to tears reading them because some of them were really, truly tragic. Others were, um, how can I put it, self-served and um, not always, uh, you know, people writing saying, I can cure cancer. All I need is for you to give me a grant and I will cure cancer in the world. And then when they were asked to provide specific information, they refused to provide information. There were people who said, let me take Perone up in an airplane and I'll show them how to seed the clouds so you can have rain whenever you want uh, because droughts were very important. Uh, to the countryside in Argentina. Uh, but he refused to explain how he was going to do it. He only wanted to take Perón up in a plane and show him how he was going to do this. I mean, there was great imagination as well as great poverty shown in these letters. So I'd like to talk about the third and fourth chapters together, since they're both looking at letters that Perón actually solicited from citizens that relate to his five-year plans. Could you tell us more about what these plans were and why they're kind of unusual, um, thinking in a regional or global context, and then also what we learn about popular participation in politics or policymaking from the suggestions citizens sent in? Right. Well, it, as I said, during the first five-year plan, they had they knew pretty much what they wanted to do before they asked people to write, and they actually only wanted them to write within a very short period of time, although they kept writing letters long afterwards. Uh, But in the second five-year plan, I think that Perón had become far more, Juan Perón had become far more aware of the levels of poverty in the countryside due to the mass migration of people from the countryside to Buenos Aires. And um, he actually sent people out uh, interviewing and seeing what was needed in localities. But in addition, localities took their own initiative and wrote um, of their needs. And among the needs were needs for transportation for their children so that they did not have to walk miles and miles and miles to get a school. So they wanted a lot more schools being built. They wanted factories. They did not see um, agro-industry as the 20th century future of Argentina in uh, mid-20th century. What they saw was um, the rise of the factory. And um, people sent very, very detailed studies of what kind of schools they wanted. And they went about and they actually got a hold of land. They had land which had been expropriated or they bought up for a school. Um, and they even planned the schools. Uh, there were people who wanted plans for a welfare state. And they explained um, in uh 20-page pamphlets or longer, what they thought the, the new welfare state would be like. They talked about 
uh, medical needs in the countryside. They talked about, um, let me see what other kinds of things. Uh, and what's interesting about these, these letters is that I would say probably 70 to 80 percent of the suggestions, in fact, were included in the second five-year plan, uh, which never was completely filled out because Perón was overthrown before then. Um, and the second five-year plan was uh, re- released late uh, in his administration, but it showed how um, Perón had realized that Buenos Aires was not the be-all and the end-all of Argentina. And in order to shore up Argentina, you had to shore up the entire country. And therefore, uh, they, took these, they took these plans seriously. And you can see notations in the files that these, um, this, this is already included in the five-year plan, or this will be sent to this agency or to some other agency. Uh, This was a time, I think, you could probably call this time um, the implementation of populism from the ground up, as well as from the top down. Because Perón sent people out to speak to uh, communities about their needs, and people wrote to Juan about their needs. And many of these were incorporated into a plan that was never fully realized, but it was there for people to read and see as a document that he cared. So when you're looking at these petitions um, or letters, are you mostly seeing things that are penned by collectives or individuals? Um, how, how are people sort of uh, framing the, the scope of their, of their requests and suggestions? Sometimes it's an entire community and everybody signs, it's usually the men, all the men sign their name because uh, female suffrage came in, um, uh, you know, late and um, uh, in 47. And so th- there wasn't um, a great, it was actually women who, women and the Peronist Women's Party that went around organizing women. Um, but when it came time to talking about schools or factories or uh, railroads or better roads, uh, it was mostly the men who wrote. And when it was a community need, they would get a lot of signatures. When it was a, um, a plan uh, on a loftier scale that extended beyond the community, that was usually penned by one person. Um, and um, when it was, and, and you also have to realize that I did not look at the files, you know, on, on the 600 boxes um, that had all kinds of plans for bridges and roads and things like that, that were um, under other topics other than social matters. So I have a very particular selection of materials that were based on my interest on how people saw what in Argentina was always called the social problem or el problema social. And um, even though roads and bridges would solve problems, they were done by engineers and had blueprints. And I mean, I looked at some of them, but it, it wasn't of the same tone as these more personal letters from individuals. 
I was also curious if you found letters among what you did, um, what you did look over, uh, coming from middle class or upper class Argentines who might not be directly implicated in the social question, but still had opinions that they wanted to share. I actually, that, that's an interesting question. There were actually children of elites who ended up in situations of being ill or um, having problems. And they wrote as well, but not very often. Um, the majority of these people were um, lower class. The middle class consisted of professionals who wrote particular suggestions uh, for the five-year plan. And um, um, there is a, in the historiography of Argentina, it was argued that most of the people who supported Perón uh, were from the countryside and they were illiterate, forgetting about the fact that Argentina was over 90% literate at this time. And so I only found a few letters where somebody wrote, um, in Mexico, I'm sure you know that there were a lot of notaries, you know, who would be in a village square with a typewriter and typing out letters for people who were illiterate. I only found a couple of those letters in Argentina, usually signed um, with a thumbprint. Uh, but the numbers in proportion to all the letters that were received were infinitesimally small, which also points to the impact of education on Argentina. The people knew what they were talking about. They knew what they needed, and uh, they could actually write it down themselves. And you had young people writing to uh, Juan and Eva, often because they were ill, but also, for example, school teachers who wanted to work uh, the campaigns for uh, Juan in the interior, people like that. Uh, and they wrote very lovely letters, um, and um, they offered to spend their summer months uh, traveling around Argentina, did not ask for any money. That was pretty amazing. There were doctors who uh, wrote to uh, Juan and Eva Perón, which I think you see in the letters where people are asking about automobiles. Because in Argentina, the, the, the automobile industry was just uh, in its infancy. And so um, a lot of people wanted to bypass the retail um, set, um, dealerships of cars, and they wanted... Juan or Eva to give them a car. And often they were doctors or professionals who needed it for uh, themselves. And um, Eva used to give away automobiles. And then after she died uh, in 1952, Juan would not give out any automobiles. He said, go to the agency and buy it there. He was not into giving free automobiles. And it was actually one man who... Um, invented his own car, which was made out of used parts of other cars. And he wanted money to set up a factory to um, sell cars that were made this way. And so he sent pictures uh, of his car. And um, But people wanted new cars. They didn't want used cars, repaired cars. 
just goes to show what a um, surprising and exciting window into the the diverse range of people's desires these sorts of letters can be. Well, and when you take a look at the inventions that people had, I mean, that's also extremely interesting. Uh, now, here's where you find the middle class very often dreaming about um, inventing something like the man who invented a um, an airplane that could also be a submarine, uh, you know, shades of James Bond, uh, and these other people who are going to seed clouds and whatever. And very rarely would they send their information in to the government because they were afraid the government was going to steal, somebody in the government would steal and make a patent for their uh, enterprise. So that's another reason why they wanted to go and meet with Juan, not with Ava, but with Juan, um, because they thought he could protect them from the theft of their intellectual property, which was a very common phenomenon in business in Argentina um, in the 20th century. There was a lot of um, uh, counterfeit, uh, counterfeit uh, drinks, counterfeit products, And so people had good reason not to trust sending their ideas into a government agency without some protection. So transitioning just a little bit, you've mentioned young people and children a couple times. um, And the fifth chapter of your book is looking at these requests, um, mainly from parents um, seeking help for their families, for their children. Can you tell us about why they were soliciting both aid and discipline and and what exactly is the relationship between families and the state in this era? Okay. Um, I think that it is true in other parts of Latin America, and I think it's probably true in Mexico as well, that in the civil code, um, first of all, fathers have control over their children and are supposed to be able to make decisions for their children. Uh, And when they can't make decisions, obviously they have to find somebody who will help them. And traditionally, these were charities, but increasingly it was the welfare state that they would turn to to get help. But for incorrigible children, um, it's interesting that um, in Argentina, the word juvenile delinquent really didn't exist um, until after 1950 or so. Parents were responsible for uh, disciplining their children. And if they couldn't, but the civil code said they could t- ask the state to um, take control over their children and put them in an institution, let's say, um, with a, um, let's say for 30 days or something, if the children were incorrigible, which was like considering the children as... Uh, delinquents. Now, these were usually poor families that did this, where they felt that adolescence, which was another term that came in very late into the vocabulary in Argentina, um, they just didn't know how to deal with children who challenged their will. Uh, And there was this outlet in the civil code that said that um, you could turn children over to an institution. And at this time, uh, probably from the 1920s onward, there were the growth of um, child-focused institutions where they would mix delinquent children with children whose parents gave them up to the state for a while, 
to rehabilitate them. They really didn't distinguish between one and the other, which was one reason why upper-class families, if they had delinquent children, they usually sent them to a military academy abroad or in Argentina to uh, inculcate that kind of discipline into the children, but they certainly didn't want their children being mixed up with poor children uh, who were also not obeying very well. And um, so it's... To me, it was fascinating how the state uh, literally gave permission for parents to give their children up for a while if the children were not behaving. So the end of your book suggests that um, Juan Perón's charismatic bonds sort of wither after Eva's death in 1952. But then you also say that this Peronista charisma has actually remained a powerful political force over several generations especially the gendered aspects of that. So could you say more about kind of the decline of letter writing as a form of registering political demands on the one hand, and then also the persistence of charisma as something that we need to be thinking about? Right. Um, Letter writing became less useful as there was more mass media available to connect um, and uh, Perón, uh, in his later years, and also with Ava, uh, went all over the country, and Ava had uh, all kinds of children's events that, that she sponsored. Uh, and after her death, the entire Ava Perón Institute, uh, the foundation, was placed under Juan Perón. He took over control of it. And what he did was to dismantle the grocery stores that she had set up in the city of Buenos Aires for poor people. Um, He started um, to not uh, accede to the demands of poor people in the same way uh, that she had, because he, as I said, he was much more interested in the establishment um, of the welfare state as opposed to personal gifts uh, from a leader to a family. And so in many ways, in many ways, Juan contradicted the welfare state as Eva Perón had imagined it, and meanwhile put into place something that had been building since the 1930s, which, which was a welfare state, which he helped rationalize and also use somewhat arbitrarily um, over time. And took it out of the hands of all different kinds. There were hundreds upon hundreds of charities in Argentina that received money from the government um, for uh, welfare activities. And gradually, these uh, convents and women's charities and uh, men's charities diminished as the welfare state became the principal way to help families, and particularly to help children. And the growth of public um, health programs, which was done um, assiduously under Perón, further undermined this kind of charismatic nature that Ava had built. But people would never forget the kindness of Ava Ava Perón. And so um, one of the things... Um, that I did at one point 
I don't think it's as true nowadays because parents' governments are in power. But at one point, you could look on the computer and you could look up um, Juan Peron and you could find really very few websites that would deal with Juan and a gazillion ones that would deal with Ava. Uh, and all kinds of things. And with the uh, uh, growth of the uh, Ava Peron Foundation today, which is um, more of an academic um, institute uh, that publishes books and has talks and things about uh, Ava Peron, her memory has remained far more visible to people than ones who never wanted to be known that way, who never wanted to be um, that kind of charismatic figure that, that simply wasn't his way. And that's why when the two of them were alive, they made such a, a powerful couple because you got the evolution of the welfare state and public health and other kinds of activities in multiple ways, both from the husband and from the wife. And that made them uh, this kind of populism particularly strong. And then populism became far weaker as uh, the economy began to decline and Perón did not want to support the labor unions in the way in which he had supported them in the past. And so in his last years, he lived in exile, uh, didn't go, he, only, he went to Argentina um, became president and then died shortly thereafter. Uh, and it's then that the uh, charismatic view of Juan um, joined the charismatic view of Eva. And there were interesting stories. Um, Eva Perón's body had been uh, kidnapped by the Navy uh, in the 1950s and placed in a cemetery in Italy, and nobody knew the whereabouts of the um, of her body. And then in the 1970s, her body was repatriated to Argentina, at which time Juan had already married his third wife. And there were discussions about, are they going to put all the bodies together? Because um, technically they were in separate um, cemeteries. And so were they going to build a mausoleum for all of the family and who was going to be on the top and who was going to be on the bottom? And you can just imagine the kind of discussions. Uh, and then Abe, uh, Juan Perón's tomb was broken into and his hands were stolen. Uh, and um, the people who stole his hands wanted a big ransom. And the Peronist party said, we don't need Perón's hands to make him. He's as important with his hands or without his hands. And so um, they never got his hands back whereas they got the body of Eva Perón back, and she's in uh, the big cemetery in Recoleta, in, uh, in the uh, fashionable part of Buenos Aires, and her husband is buried in the middle-class cemetery of Chacarita. They're never to be together. They never got together to build that tomb. Wow. That's a fascinating legacy and end to into the story. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking about this book with you. But to conclude our conversation, would you tell us about your current work in progress? I am currently writing a book of essays about um, <clears throat> the most famous 
department store in England, which is called Harrods, and how it opened up in Buenos Aires in 1912. The only branch of Harrods that ever opened up, opened up in Buenos Aires. And this gets back to the story of to be as rich as an Argentine. The, the, the Argentines were, in a sense, like Middle Easterners going to London nowadays and shopping and buying jewelry and all these kind of fine things. Uh, and they did that. The Argentines did that uh, in the 1890s uh, until the outbreak of World War One, And so uh, Harrods became uh, very interested in opening up a store where all these rich people came from. And they presumed that everybody in Argentina was as rich as the people who shopped in London, which is the same thing as saying that every person from this, from Saudi Arabia is as wealthy as the sheikhs who go to London nowadays, which of course we know isn't true. But people just didn't know that much about shopping habits in Argentina and this store opened up and it became very famous. It looked like Harrods of London. It, looked, it still does. It's still there, although it's closed. And um, they opened up all kinds of departments trying to sell all sorts of things to Argentines, most of which they didn't want, curiously enough. And so the store ended up closing in the 1970s but it had really reached its zenith by uh, the 1930s or so. And uh, even Ava Perone offered to buy Harrods in 1946, but there simply wasn't enough money in um, uh, blocked sterling currency to buy Harrods, so she couldn't do it. Uh, and so this, this store has a great legacy in Argentina. And once again, there's a lot of imagination that goes into this, the telling of what was Harrods and how all the wealthy people went there, which they didn't, and um, how it was so fabulous. And so that's what I'm writing about. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to reading that somewhere down the line. Um, and it's a fascinating connection with Eva as well. Well, we've been speaking today with Donna Guy about her book, Creating Charismatic Bonds in Argentina, Letters to Juan and Eva Perón, uh, here with the New Books Network. Donna, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Take care. <laughs>